0: Good morning. What happens if your measurements are off however so slightly? While you you might not notice an error at first, the longer you continue with the wrong starting point, the greater the consequences. Uh, There's an old Chinese proverb that roughly translates, deviate an inch and lose a thousand miles. Now that might seem like an overstatement, but consider what happened on August 31st, 1983. That night, 269 souls boarded Korean Airlines Flight 007 from JFK to Seoul, South Korea but that plane would never reach its destination. After refueling in Anchorage, the pilots set their final course for Korea, or so they thought. Uh, Something was malfunctioning with the autopilot, and the plane veered off course just a few degrees. In the first hour, the plane was a mere 12 miles off course, but as time progressed, it drifted further and further away from its planned course, And five hours later, it drifted into Soviet airspace. Now, if that happened 10 years later in 1993, the Cold War would have been over. And this really wouldn't have been an incident. But in that particular time in American history, the Cold War was fiercely Raging, and the Soviets were incredibly uh, uncertain and incredibly suspicious of everything American. We don't know exactly what happened that night, but we do know this that Soviet fighter jets were sent into the air and they shot down that plane, and none of its inhabitants, none of the souls on board survived. All 269 passengers and crew died as the aircraft hit the water. All because the starting point was just slightly off. This morning, we're going to begin studying over the next month the doctrine of eschatology, which simply means it's the study of the end, the study of last things, and by the way, if you're our guest this morning, it's not because we just thought it would be cool to talk about the end of the world, although maybe you think it is. Um, we are actually go, our main diet as a church is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for about a decade and a half. Not really, but it feels like that perhaps. And we are finally in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus Talks at length about the end of the world. So if you're not already there, open up your Bible, grab one near you. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the Bibles under the seats. That's our gift to you. But grab a Bible, open it up to Matthew 24. It will help you immensely to be, to be able to follow along as we read this portion of Scripture together and discuss it. Now, this is the fifth and final major teaching discourse in Matthew's gospel, and it's often called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus teaches while he's on the Mount of Olives. And one of the things you need to know about the next two chapters we're going to be looking at, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, is that these chapters are notoriously difficult to understand. Uh, One Bible scholar uh, named D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew said this, few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. So no big deal, just one of the most confusing and disagreed upon chapters in the whole New Testament. That's what we're going to talk about for the next month. I'm convinced, though, that one of the main reasons why there is so much confusion and so much disagreement about the Bible's teaching on the end of the world is because many of us begin with the wrong starting point. I think our first instinct, we hear about the end of the world, is to ask the question, when? Perhaps some of you are hoping that at some point over the next few weeks, we'll give you some clues as to when. If you look at verse 3 in Matthew's gospel, that's the very first question that the disciples ask. They ask, when? And so much disagreement and debate about Christian teaching on the end of the world is all about whose chart about when is better. I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong place to start. If we start by looking for when, trying to figure out what current events will clue us in on when the return of Christ is going to happen, if we start there, we're going to end up miles away from the truth. Uh, One famous example of this was a booklet that some of you might remember called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. (laughs) Now, I'm not a super smart person, but it's well past 1988. And as far as I know, the rapture did not occur. Now, the author of that book, uh, he spent a lot of time, obviously, writing 88 Reasons. And he figured, man, when 1989 hit and the ball dropped, you know, maybe my calculations were just a little bit off. So he came out with a follow-up, the sequel, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. Of course, that one didn't pan out either. And so he had a far more modest book that came out in 1989. 1993 listing 23 reasons why Jesus would come back in 1993. I remember as a kid, very vividly, teenager, I remember a guest preacher coming into our church and telling us about this super scary thing. Some of you might remember it called Y2K. Some of you have no idea what that is. And that's crazy to me. That makes me feel old, but some of you know you know about y two k and I remember the preacher. I can picture him in my head standing in front of our congregation and telling us that at y two k when the strike when the clock strikes midnight that 's going to be the beginning of the seven year great tribulation. Jesus is not going to rapture you first. You're going to go through it, Christians, and you better be ready. If you don't stockpile the list of approved resources, you're not going to survive. And check your bulletin inserts for the things that you need to stockpile. Vividly remember that. Now, we are not, with God's help, we are not going to approach eschatology that way. With God's help, I want us to begin with a different starting point. With God's help, I don't want to start with asking the question, when is this going to happen? But what should we expect? And how can we be ready? In fact, I, the big idea I want to show you from today's text is that Jesus doesn't tell us when the world ends, but what to expect and how to be ready. So because there's so much going on in these two chapters of Scripture that make up the Olivet Discourse, like I said, we're going to be in this portion of Scripture for about a month. And when we gather for our monthly Sunday night gathering in September, on September the 10th, we're going to have a Sunday night theology, and the whole thing is going to be talking about the end times. So I'm guessing some of you are going to have some questions about all sorts of stuff as we walk through Jesus' teaching over the next few weeks. Would you write those down and email me or bring them with you and come back on September the 10th at 5.30 and we'll talk about all of that. All right, commercial is now over. All right, three principles that we need to understand if we're going to understand Jesus' teaching on the end of the world rightly. Three principles. These are going to help us understand Today's passage. And they're gonna help us understand what's coming in the next few weeks. Principle number one don't overlook the disciples' questions. Don't overlook the disciples' questions. These are crucial for understanding this entire section. Of scripture. Now remember, it's Tuesday night, Jesus has just had his Tuesday mic drop moment with the Pharisees. If you've been here the past few weeks, you've watched as he, as he absolutely crushed the Pharisees, the seven woes in Matthew 23. He drops the mic, he turns around, and he heads back to Bethany where his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. That's where Jesus and his disciples are probably staying during the week of Passover. And to get from the temple in Jerusalem to Bethany, you've got to walk through the Mount of Olives. They're climbing up the Mount of Olives, probably perhaps around sunset, and there's this glorious picture of the temple complex. We can get that on the screen for you. Beautiful view of the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. That gold dome building right there in the middle right portion of your screen, that of course is not the temple. That is a Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock. But that is about where the temple would be. That's the temple mount, the temple complex. And that building, the second temple... Herod, King Herod, had been making all sorts of improvements to that building. It was a sight to behold. It had polished limestone walls. They were covered in gold. You can imagine the the sight of this gold-plated building as the sun is setting from the Mount of Olives. A Jewish historian named Josephus wrote this about the temple. He said, to approach strangers... It appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. This is a beautiful, glorious building. Now, you have to remember, the disciples are not from Jerusalem. Most of them are from Galilee. And so for them, this is a big deal to see the temple in all of its glory and all of its beauty. It would be like the difference between somebody from the Bronx and someone from Pocosin seeing the Statue of Liberty. If you live in the Bronx, it's really not a big deal. It kind of loses its luster. But if you go there for the first time, you're like, wow, this is incredible. These disciples see the temple and they're talking to Jesus. They say, verse one, it says they came to Jesus to point out to him the buildings of the temple. In Mark's account of this same teaching, the disciples say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. Jesus, this building's incredible. Now, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He uses their comment as a teaching opportunity to remind the disciples not to put their hope in buildings or anything made by man. Jesus tells them in this chapter, in response to their comment, that temple, so beautiful, so glorious, before your generation dies out, that temple is going to be destroyed. Look at verse two. Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In in less than 40 years after Jesus spoke those very words, during the Passover week in A.D. 70, a Roman general named Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem with armies, He held the city under siege for nearly five brutal months. And during that time, millions of Jews were killed. Thousands were enslaved. Countless men and women resorted to cannibalism to survive. The temple was desecrated on August 30th when Roman forces broke into the city and burned the temple to the ground. And as Jesus predicted, every single stone in that temple structure was thrown to the ground. And if you visit the city of Jerusalem today, you can see evidence of exactly what Jesus prophesied. You can see it on the screen. That every single stone, these massive stones that made up the temple are thrown down by the Romans in A.D. seventy. Now the disciples hear that, and they've got to be absolutely stunned. This building's incredible, what Jesus, what are you talking about? And so they go to Jesus in verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, tell us when these things, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's absolutely crucial to notice carefully what the disciples ask Jesus in verse 3. It's going to help us understand the entire Olivet Discourse. They ask Jesus not one question, but two. Question number one, when will these things be? In other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed? That's the first question. Question number two, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When's the world going to end? Now, in the disciples' mind, they're probably thinking these two events are going to happen at the same time, right? That temple's glorious. Can you imagine if the temple is destroyed, the world must be ending? It's probably like what many of us would think if the White House burned down or if the Statue of Liberty fell down. You would think the world is ending, The temple, this is their pride and joy. This is their glory. This is the highlight of the Jewish people. Jesus says it's going to end, and they think they're probably going to happen. The end of the world is going to happen at the same time the temple is destroyed. But Jesus actually answers those two questions separately. And the reality is that there's a massive gap between those two events. As we said, that temple was destroyed in AD 70. And despite what Chicken Little, R.E.M., and the climate activists tell us, it is not the end of the world. So, why is it important that we don't overlook the disciples' two questions? Imagine that you're trying to decorate your Christmas tree And you pull out a light uh, or pull out a box of Christmas lights. And in that box are two strands of Christmas lights, but they're all tangled up, right? And what do we normally do? Just go buy new lights, right? I mean, the Christmas light people, they have a racket going on because the light bulb goes out or they get tangled up. You just throw them away. We don't really do that with anything else, but we do it with Christmas lights. Anyway, so you get, you just, let's just imagine you want to untangle them, but, but they're all tangled up. You can't really tell where one ends and the other begins. Think of Matthew 24, kind of like your box of tangled-up Christmas lights. You've got two prophecies. One, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and the second is the return of Jesus. And those two strands of prophecy are tangled up all throughout this teaching section so that it is sometimes hard to tell when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and when he's talking about his return, which is one of the reasons why this chapter is notoriously difficult to understand. Now, my view is that most of Jesus' words in verses 1 to 35, most of those words are about the destruction of the temple. And most of Jesus' words in chapter 24, 36 through the end of chapter 25 are about the end of the world. But it's not always easy to tell which is which. It's kind of like a knotty, tangled up mess. And with God's help, we're going to do our best to try to unpack it all together. But here's the deal. When you've got these two strands of prophecy running together, tangled together like this, you end up with a lot of tension. Think of like a long rubber band stretched out. It's a lot of tension. Tension. And that, isn't there? Some of you don't even like watching me do this. You're afraid it's going to snap. Some of us, we're not comfortable with tension. And when there's tension, we want to release the tension. And I believe that well-meaning Christians, when they see the tension in Matthew 24, they see the tension in the Bible's teaching about the end of the world, they try to release the tension going in one of two directions. On the one hand, some people try to push everything into the past. They focus on the disciples' first question about the s- destruction of the temple. And so there are Bible teachers, godly, faithful Bible teachers, that will say nearly everything in Matthew 24 is talking about what happened in A.D. 70. This position, it's, if you're interested, it's called preterism. You want to Google it and look it up, you can. And a version of it has been taught by faithful Bible teachers like R.C. Sproul and J. Adams. They push everything into the past. The other way to reduce that tension is to do what? Push everything into the future. And so there are Bible teachers, faithful Bible teachers, that focus almost exclusively on the disciples' second question about the end of the world. And so, Matthew 24, for these Bible teachers, becomes only about the end of the world. And even when it seems like Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, they'll say, well, he's not talking about that temple. He must be talking about a future temple that hasn't been built yet. And so, there are actually groups of Christians, even today, that are working together behind the scenes, trying to get the temple rebuilt so that The end of the world can happen and Jesus can come back. And by the way, there are faithful Bible teachers that teach that view as well. It's called futurism if you're interested. And these would include people like David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, faithful teachers of God's Word. My own view, sometimes called idealism, although no one's ever accused me of being an idealist, is that we shouldn't try to resolve the tension. My view is that why does Matthew 24 have to be either or? Why can't it be both and? Why can't Jesus be talking about what happened in AD 70 and about what happens at the end of the world? Why can't he be talking about both? Instead of trying to figure out when all of this is going to happen, as both of those extremes, I think, try to do, Wouldn't it be better if instead we focused on what to expect and how to be ready? One practical application that we can take away from this section before we move on to our second principle is that God does not answer when questions. Jesus answers a lot of questions in Matthew 24. Do you know what question he doesn't answer? When? How often do we go to God asking Him to answer our when questions? When is my child going to start behaving? When am I going to get married? When am I going to have kids or going to have another kid? When am I going to get a better job? When am I going to be able to move? When am I going to be able to retire? When is my bank account going to be big enough? When will my suffering be over? Stop asking God when. Learn to be faithful with whatever he sends your way. Learn to be faithful in the waiting. Learn to be faithful without asking God. When? Instead, ask Him, God, how do you want me to live while I wait? It'll help us to stop asking, when will the end come, if we don't overlook the disciples' questions in our text. But there's a second principle that we need to understand this chapter rightly. Number two, don't misunderstand the signs. Don't misunderstand the signs. Remember in verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus for signs to figure out when all this stuff is going to happen. In verses 4 to 12, Jesus lists a number of dangers that the disciples are going to face. We're going to unpack those dangers in a moment, but first, I want us to work really, really hard to make sure that we don't understand what Jesus is talking about in verses 4 to 12. So let me give you two, uh, two truths to pay attention to to make sure we don't misunderstand these signs. Here's the first one. These are not signs of the end. Now, I just noticed this as we were doing the Scripture reading. I'm re- preaching from the English Standard Version, If you're following along in the ESV uh, or if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's the ESV, you might notice that there is a section heading right above verse 3 that says signs of the end of the age. Is Pastor Hobson contradicting the Scriptures? I am contradicting that section heading. You need to know this if uh, you're relatively new to the Bible. Those section headings are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're given to us by well-meaning Bible translators to help us understand what a section of Scripture is talking about. 99 times out of 100, I'm going to say, great job, section heading. This time, no. I do not think that these are signs of the end. And here's why. Not because it's in my own head, but look at what Jesus says in verse 6. You hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But what? The end is not yet. Jesus explicitly says, these things I'm talking about are not signs of the end. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. This is not a sign of the end. It's not a sign of when I'm coming, but that I'm coming. I can't tell you how many times I have heard Bible teachers say, rumors of wars. Jesus must be about to come back. Famines, earthquakes. Jesus is about to come back. Jesus does give us, he gives his disciples, Two signs of the end. One of them is the sign of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 20. It's not in Matthew 24, but it is in Luke 21, verse 20. It's not on the screen, but you can jot it down and read it later. In Luke 21, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, here's the sign that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. You're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, That's exactly what happened in A.D. 70. Jesus' words were exactly, literally fulfilled. And then in Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus tells us the sign of the end of the world. What is it? Look at 2430. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. How do you know it's the end of the world? When you see Jesus. That's how you know. There's your sign. It's not all this stuff. These are not signs of the end. Then what are they? They are, letter B, subpoint B, these are the beginning of birth pains. Look at verse eight. That's exactly what Jesus says about this section right in the middle. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now let's think about what that means for a second. I can't say anything about birth pains from experience, just so you know. Well, there was the pain that I had as I was hungry because I couldn't eat that morning. We had to rush to the hospital. Never mind, we'll move on. Okay, here's what I've heard about birth pains they are not a one and done sort of thing, right? They're stretched out over a period of time, it hurts for a period. Of time In the same way, the signs in verse 4 to 12, the birth pains, are not a one-and-done sort of thing either. They happen over a large period of time. Here's my personal belief, although you don't have to agree with me on this. I believe that the birth pains go from the ascension of Jesus until the return of Jesus. The entire age of the church... From Jesus going into heaven until Jesus coming back to heaven, or coming back from heaven, is a period of birth pains. Now, you get this pain. You get this, this is not something that is only characteristic of the end of the age. Jesus is talking about things that every Christian in every generation has to deal with. I think you'll see that as we go along. Another thing about birth pains is that they they ebb and flow, don't they? They're intense, and they let up for a little bit. Then they're intense, and they let up for a little bit. In the same way, these signs will sometimes seem more intense, and then they'll let up for a little bit. Intense, let up for a little bit. Just think about the 20th century. We had World War I, a small period of peace. World War II small period of peace, right? You've got this ebbing and flowing of birth pains. Seems to be the pattern that we see in our own world. But then also with birth pains, they intensify as labor progresses. And so I do believe that as we get nearer and nearer and nearer to the end, you will see an intensification of the sort of stuff Jesus describes in this section. And then finally, birth pains lead to beautiful new life. And in the same way, after all of these birth pains, Jesus returns, and what do God's people receive? Beautiful new life, and a new heavens, and a new earth. That's what we need to know about the signs. So let's look at what the signs actually are. Beginning in verse 4, number 1, there's false messiahs. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Jesus is saying, listen, watch out. Some people are going to say that they're the Messiah. Do not believe them. That happened. That actually happened leading up to AD 70 before the temple was destroyed. There was false messiahs. And guess what? It's happened Ever since, it's been happening over and over and over again. There are people that either claim to be literally Jesus or claim to be some sort of hero rescuer. Uh, You could argue, I think, convincingly, that this happens every four years in American politics, doesn't it? If we don't get the right guy, it's all going to fall apart. This is the most important election in my lifetime. I've heard that every single year since... I was a kid, every single four years. We act as if that candidate is a rescuer, a Messiah, a Savior, a fixer, and everything hinges on Him. Jesus says, don't believe that. Don't be led astray. Second, birth pain is great evil. There's great evil. Theologians often distinguish between two types of evil. There's moral evil. That's the evil that's committed by a moral human agent. So think murders, think rape, think slavery, theft. And then there's natural evil. That's the evil that we see in nature as a result of living in a fallen world. So think COVID-19, think earthquakes, think forest fires, think hurricanes. Jesus says in the years between his first and second comings, the world is going to be characterized by both types of evil. Look at verses 6 and 7. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's moral evil. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes. That's natural evil in various places. Sometimes I, I see Christians looking at all the chaos in the news, you know, war in Ukraine, rumors of war in Taiwan, and forest fires and earthquakes and viruses and this or that, and they say, it's the end of the world. Jesus is coming back. Well, Jesus is coming back, Christian, but Jesus explicitly says these things must take place, but the end is not yet. And he says, don't be alarmed. So let me ask you, Christian, are you panicking or anxious about the great evil that you see in our world today? You shouldn't be. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's exactly what he said would happen. The third birth pain is intense persecution. Look at verse nine. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Great persecution of Christians preceded the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and great persecution has plagued Christians all over the world ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And it will until he returns. Think of the 11 disciples. Judas, of course, killed himself. But the other 11 disciples, every single one of them but John, died a martyr's death. Every single one of them. And John the apostle was deeply, severely persecuted before he died of old age. Here's what baffles me. Often I hear American Christians looking at the threats to religious liberty in our country and they say, persecution's coming, must be the end of the world. Your brothers and sisters have been persecuted all over the world for as long as you've been alive. What does it say about us if we think it must be the end of the world because it's starting to affect us? Jesus says, don't be surprised about this stuff. It's going to happen. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is a birth pain that every Christian in every generation must face. There's different forms of persecution. It affects us in different ways. But you can't faithfully follow Jesus and not face opposition as a Christian. The fourth birth pain is apostasy. That word apostasy is not a word we use very often. It's, it, it refers to a willful decision to abandon or reject your faith in Jesus. Today, uh, people use the word Deconversion but it basically means the same thing. It's apostasy. Look at verse 10. As persecution increases, more people who once identified as Christians are gonna renounce their faith and fall away. Jesus says many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In 2010, a a well-known evangelical pastor named Josh Harris, wrote a book encouraging young people to dig down deep into the pages of Scripture to understand the deep truths of God. It was, it's a good book, it was very helpful for me. At the end of that book, very end, Josh Harris said this, the gospel is the truth that every follower of Jesus Christ is called to cherish and preserve, even die for. It is the only truth on which we can build our lives and rest our eternal hope. We agree with that, in Baptist Church. And nine years later, in 2019, Josh Harris was no longer a pastor. In fact, he said he was no longer a Christian. And a year or two later, he was operating a website to help Christians walk away from their faith, to help them apostatize. Jesus says that's what's going to happen. What do you think when you hear stories like that, Christian, of people that once had such confident faith and then eventually walked away from it. Can I tell you what we should think? But by the grace of God, there go I. It is only by the grace of God that I will be able to persevere into the end. Jesus, would you help me to persevere? That ought to be our prayer. Fifth birth pain is false teaching. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. There was a problem in A.D. 70 prior to the destruction of the temple, and it's been a problem for 2,000 years. This will continually be a problem until Jesus returns. If you're a member of Pocosan Baptist Church, part of your responsibility as a member is to help us as a church fight against false doctrine. Doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. Some of you are going to disagree with some of the finer points of my teaching on the end times. That's okay. But do we agree on the essentials? And are we committed? Are we committed to fight error wherever it's found? The final birth pain is lawlessness and lovelessness. Look at the second half of verse 11. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow Every generation of Christians, until Jesus returns, will deal with some form of lawlessness. The types of lawlessness that we deal with will vary from generation to generation, but sin and wickedness is not new. Just consider the past hundred years in our country. It's easier to look around at our country today and say, man, things have really gotten terrible in America. And in some ways, that's certainly true. But has everything gotten worse? Few Americans today believe some of the racist ideas that were popular in our country 100 years ago. Far fewer women in America today are willing to suffer abuse in silence like they did 100 years ago. But hear me, Christian, lawlessness is not new it just changes its strategy from one generation to another our challenge as christians is to not stop loving a lawless world you see as lawlessness increases love grows cold here's our temptation you see the lawlessness out there and you stop loving them and you start to treat them as combatants instead of captives and you begin to li- line up in teams and tribes. And it's us against them rather than remembering that we are here for them so that they might know the God that we worship. So let me ask you, dear Christian, where has your love grown cold? Instead of trying to figure out when all this is going to happen, why don't we focus on what to expect and how to be ready? It'll help if we don't misunderstand the signs. There's one final principle that we need to understand to get this chapter rightly, and that's that we, we must not ignore the big picture. Point number three, don't ignore the big picture. Whenever we talk about the end of the world, it's super easy to geek out on eschatology, if that's your thing, and get caught up in all these tiny details and miss the big picture. In verses 13 to 14, Jesus teaches three truths that I think are the big picture of eschatology. That we all must agree on these three things. Number one, we must and will persevere. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think Jesus in his immediate context is talking about those who were able to survive the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but its ultimate fulfillment is a, a calling for each one of us to be faithful unto death, as Revelation says. Christian, your most important job is not to figure out all the details about the end of the world. Your most important job, my most important job, is to prepare my heart for the return of Jesus. (coughs) So let me ask you, how are you persevering? How are you persevering? Are, Are you faithfully gathering with God's people? Are you faithfully reading God's word? Are you faithful in prayer? Are you faithfully fighting sin? Are you faithfully pursuing holiness? Are you faithfully pouring into other people? Christian, if you're going to avoid being another deconversion story, you have to persevere. I told you about Josh Harris. A few months after all of that happened, I saw one of my dear friends, uh, one of our missionaries who's uh, now in Panama. He was at the time in Mexico City, brother named Carlos Yambes. And Um, Josh Harris had helped me, not personally, but his books had helped me. And so I was talking to my friend and mentor, Carlos, and saying, what do you think about this? You know, help me think through this. This is tough to see this guy's story. And Carlos said something I hope I never forget. Carlos said to me, Hobson, if that was you, I wouldn't give up on you. If that was you, I would chase you down. I would knock on your door and I would talk to you and I wouldn't stop praying for you and I wouldn't give up on you until you breathe your last breath. Christian, followers of Jesus in this room, let me ask you, who's going to fight for you like that? Do you have anybody that's going to fight for you like that? Who is going to love you enough to get in your face and say, don't go down that road? Persevere, brother, persevere, sister. Do you have people? This is one reason why the local church is so important. We need brothers and sisters, an army of brothers and sisters that love us enough to confront us when we're wrong and pursue us when we wander. Do you have that, Christian? Let me say something even more encouraging to you, Christian. Jesus himself will fight for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus, you must and will persevere. He will not let you go, Christian. Second big picture truth is that the gospel must and will advance. Look at verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. What is the gospel? The word literally means good news. It's the good news of what God has done to rescue wandering, broken, sinful, rebellious people. God is holy and righteous and just and he created this world and everything in it and our first parents Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And as a result, all of us are sinners by nature and choice. All of us deserve the wrath of God. Read the end of Matthew 25 and what Jesus says awaits those who die in their sin. That's what we deserve. And yet God, in His love, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, And then three days later, rise from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. That's the gospel. Jesus here calls it the gospel of the kingdom because to receive that gospel, you've got to submit to its king. His name is Jesus. You've got to submit to him. Jesus says that that gospel, that good news, that message is going to spread all over the world before he returns. Why? Because Revelation 5 tells us that Jesus is going to have followers from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. Jesus will not return until the last one of his sheep repents and believes. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus will not return until the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth, and all of his redeemed repent and believe and trust in him. So, dear Christian, how are you working towards the advance of that gospel? Are you faithfully giving to this local church and supporting our gospel ministries across the street and around the world? Are you faithfully encouraging and supporting missionaries through prayer and sacrificial giving? Are you teaching your children, your grandchildren, the good news of Jesus? Are you talking to unbelievers in your life about Jesus? Are you willing to devote a little bit of extra time on a Sunday morning and join the 30 or so of us to study how we can grow in evangelism as a church? What are you doing to help this gospel advance? The final big picture truth is that Jesus must and will return. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, after all of this, then the end will come. Jesus is coming back. The question is, will we be ready? When you see Jesus in the sky, the Bible says every eye will see him. I don't know how that's going to happen, but every eye is going to see him. Will it be a thrilling joy? Finally, Jesus waited so long to see him. Or will your heart and mind be filled with regret, thinking of all the times that you could have trusted Him but didn't? Dear friend, if your faith is not in Jesus, it's not too late to look to Him and be saved today. Have you already done that? and you haven't yet made it public through baptism, you can talk to one of our pastors today about how you can make that step. And when you see him, you'll see him as one of his baptized redeemed. If you've done both of those things, then let me ask you, Christian, are you living in light of the return of Christ? Are you persevering to the end? Sometimes when your starting point is slightly off, the effects can be disastrous. Other times it's frustrating, but it's not really a huge deal. I can't tell you how many times I have put an address into my GPS maps app on my phone and I put in the wrong thing, so I end up in the wrong place. It's frustrating, it's annoying, it's not really that big of a deal. When it comes to what we believe on eschatology, we're not going to agree on everything. If we agree on the most important things, Jesus is coming back and we must be ready, then we ought to move forward with joy and unity and passion for the lost. What will be most devastating is not if we disagree on a finer point of the end times, but if anyone in this room would not prepare their heart. So let that be our prayer as we continue to walk through this section of Scripture together, holding fast to Jesus as he holds fast to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news that you sent your son to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death so that whoever would repent and believe and trust in this king, we could be made new. God, it's exciting to think about the end of the world and think about all these things that create so much debate among Christians. But Lord, may we be more excited about winning the lost. May we be more excited about having our hearts ready to see you May we be more excited about being in right relationship with you and in right relationship with our neighbors. Help us not to focus on the win questions, but help us to understand what to expect and how to be ready. And Father, as we do all these things, may we do do it with joy, knowing that you are the one that's holding fast to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just stand as we sing together.